Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. I'm James Kennedy. And this is the Secrets of Story podcast. That was our theme music. Hi, everybody. It has been a while since we've recorded an episode. We've been up to various things. James, what have you been up to? Well, I'm right now in the middle of my 92nd Newberry Film Festival, which you came to in our Chicago screening a couple weeks ago. I did. For those of you who don't remember, uh, kids make movies that tell the entire stories of Newberry winning books in about 90 seconds. In Chicago, we did the screening, and then afterwards we had my 50th birthday party. Yes, indeed. You don't look 50. You look a lot younger. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming to the screening and coming to the party afterwards. I was saying to Betsy before we started the show, like I want my birthday parties to always feel like the final scene of uh, It's a Wonderful Life. And when I said that to her, she was like, she was waiting for me. The final scene of 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 what <laughs> of Brazil of this or that, but yeah, yeah. I want to be surrounded by friends, especially on my fiftieth. Um, I want to uh, I want to have some, especially after like you know two and a half three years of pandemic. I want I want people in the same room because it was like at my birthday party in twenty twenty. That was right before the huge lockdown. Yes. Well, it was. It, COVID had started, and everyone was talking about COVID, but no one was caring about it yet. And the one acknowledgement of COVID you had at your party in... 2020. March of 2020, is you were like, you had all these people gathered to see the 92nd everybody that year, and then gathered at your birthday party, and then you were about to blow out the candles on the cake, when suddenly you're like, no, because of COVID, and you took the candles out and blew them out separately from the cake, one by one. And it's like, that was like the one the one acknowledgement of COVID in the whole party. And then within a week, everything was shut down. Yeah, and hilariously, like, if I had COVID, that would have been worse. For, <laughs> you know, because if I blew it onto the cake, you don't eat COVID and get COVID. You know, I'm, by blowing it more into the air, <laughs> I was true. actually making things worse. That's true. And probably by hitting the flame, it activated them and turned them into <laughs> super COVIDs. By the way, you may have wondered, why do we sound so warm and personable? And why do we sound like we have less willingness to insult each other and for fear of getting punched in the face? It's because for the first time, speaking of, for the first time since before COVID, we are recording in person. As you may have heard if you listen to my other podcast, Marvel Reread Club with Steve Bird, that Zencaster has been giving people trouble. Zencaster has been trying to get people to accept ads and or pay for a monthly fee. So I said, well, that's a big problem with me and my brother because we live in different states, but I can just have James come up here. That was the original idea of this podcast. He used to come up. He lives in Chicago. I live in Emerson, Illinois. He used to drive on up and we would record for the first three years or so of this podcast. And then for the last three years or so of this podcast, we've been recording from our separate homes because of COVID. But at this point, we're all pretending that COVID is over. So let's go ahead. And I didn't want to pay Zencaster any money, so I invited James up here. So we are actually having to be civil to each other for once. Yeah, I mean, this is, whole thing with Zencaster is what Cory Doctorow calls the inshittification of the internet. All these things that were offered us to, for free, all these wonderful terms, everything seems so good. Now all of these services are being made on purpose worse and worse to squeeze the last penny out of them. Yes. But we had a good ride while it lasted with Zencaster, and it's not like Zencaster was perfect. It would fuck up occasionally and eat whole episodes. That never really happened with us. That happened with my brother, where it ate a whole episode. But uh, we, it almost happened with us on this show several times. So, 
but hey, here we are. You know, they can't make us pay to actually hang out. So uh, <laughs> not not yet, not yet. Um, one other thing though uh-huh. that I want to talk about with things that are going on. Fans of the show know that I wrote one novel called a YA novel called The Order of Oddfish, and fans of the show know that in 2021 I had a science fiction novel come out called Dare to Know. Now, in August 15th, mentioned this in earlier episodes, I've got a horror novel coming out called Bride of the Tornado. Please go and pre-order it. Go to bookshop.org or even to the A word and order it and, and send my girls to college. Thank you. Bride of the Tornado. You'll love it. Yes, I highly recommend all of James's books. You should check them all out. Okay, James. So let's go and talk about why we're here tonight. I forget how this episode even came up, but at one point when... People who talk about writing talk to each other. Sometimes McKendrick's Rules comes up. At one point, you and I were talking, and McKendrick's Rules came up, and I said, oh, that we could get a good episode out of McKendrick's Rules. For those who don't know, Alexander McKendrick was a great director. He just directed a handful of films, for the most part raised in Scotland, then went on to become director for English film companies, and he directed a couple of really great films there, including The Man in the White Suit, and The Lady Killers. Both with Alec Guinness. Both with Alec Guinness. And then he came to America and really only made one great film, but it was a truly great film, This Sweet Smell of Success, with Burt Lancaster and Tony Curtis as backstabbing agents. And then he went ahead and retired to become a film professor, and he was a film professor at CalArts for a good 30 years, and he taught a whole generation of great filmmakers who still worship and adore him, and his advice was eventually codified and boiled down to 41 rules and he and these these are shared by filmmakers and lovers of storytelling from person to person and they're like have you read mckendrick's rules and then they hand them around i did a series on my blog about 10 years ago in which i went through mckendrick's rules and talked about how each one interfaced with my own advice and how for the most part, I agreed with his rules and how it's like, I was like, oh, here's something that I wrote that is somewhat similar to what McKendrick is saying or takes it in a different direction. And some of them were like, I actually disagree with what McKendrick is saying. And here's an example of a piece in which I disagree with what he's saying. But that was just a few of them. I, for the most part, agreed. How do you feel about the rules of Alexander McKendrick, James Kennedy? For me to talk about what I feel about them, I think I want to have a broader view for a second about not only these rules, but just kind of like what we're doing in general on the podcast. Okay. My overall take is at first, I was like, sure, like all these rules seem more or less true. You know, Uh there's a couple ones I had cavils with, but whatever. But the more I thought about these rules, the more I started to feel suspicious about them. Not just the content, but just like this overly confident, sweeping, like kind of hard-ass tone to them. And I think lists of rules like this should be approached cautiously because it can destroy the creative instinct and make a story feel airless and standardized and by the numbers. Like the interesting thing about reading lists of rules like McKendrick's, or like say the rules of Aristotle's poetics, is that we see the rules of storytelling aren't immutable principles that hold true for all stories at all times. Sometimes the project that you and I are doing together gets a little lost because our type of advice we talk about is definitely tilted towards movies and definitely kind of classic Hollywood movies of a certain era. But then we falsely expand them sometimes, or we don't, but maybe people may be tempted to falsely expand this to all stories. And this is something I've always felt, but that Matthew Salasis episode we did kind of confirmed that feeling of mine in a new way. So like seeing McKendrick's rules, which come from an era just slightly different from ours, really makes us think that storytelling rules arise in a contingent way in response to a certain aesthetic scene, whether it's like the modern streaming era, which would have different rules than like 1940s Hollywood, which would have kind of different rules in like ancient Greece, right? And applying different modes of story delivery, like a streaming series that goes over many episodes as opposed to a 90-minute movie or as opposed to a live play, 
and for certain audiences, like mass market to the U.S. or like whatever in Greece, and with certain constraints that are outside the story that have to be honored, like don't upset the advertisers or China, maybe particular patrons in Greece. So all these rule givers have certain predecessors that they want to pick a fight with, right? Like right. you have, you want to pick a fight with previous rule givers. Oh yeah. And, and like Aristotle wanted to pick a fight with like, oh, this this certain kind of play. Oh, I hate when I see this. I got to write a rule about like no Deus Ex Machina, you know, yeah. which like turns into a rule that gets reified and turned into this immutable principle. But and as we said in the Solicitous episode, maybe it's not always, you know, such a bad thing to have a Deus Ex Machina. So do you mind if I just go into this a little bit to give context about, and then we can talk about McKendrick's advice? Yep, let's do it. All right, so why it might be obsolete for the era in which we tell stories a little differently. Like, think about it this way. People always say, oh, read Aristotle's Poetics. And maybe, but then you read Aristotle's Poetics, and you're like, this does not really address the way stories are told today. And, like, why should it? And so just to, like, put McKendrick's rules in perspective, just think, what was a play in ancient Greece? Like, Greek plays were live affairs. They weren't read. They were performed. They were only performed in early spring, in daylight, in outdoor theaters that could hold like 15,000 spectators. They would be unruly, jeering and throwing fruit maybe. As a matter of form, you always had a chorus that physically stood between the actors and the audience who could talk to the actors on one side and to the audience on the other. That chorus was made up of prominent members of the Athenian community whom people in the audience probably knew by reputation. Each play was only ever performed once. And the plays were part of religious festivals that also feel, featured processions and animal sacrifices, which, by the way, supports my theory that drama proceeds from an essentially religious impulse, which is in opposition to your belief, Matt, that stories are about showing us how to solve large problems, right? Yes. Female characters are played by men. If you look at the plays, there are never more than three speaking characters on stage at any one time. So you've got Aristotle coming along, and he's writing rules for these particular kinds of stories that are tellable in that particular context. From this perspective, it's surprising that Aristotle's poetics has anything to tell us, because it's so different than how we consume stories today. Let's transfer that insight to these rules that we're about to discuss, McKendrick's rules. He's talking about how to write for movies from the late 1940s and early 1950s. Well, but I think one thing that's interesting about yeah. it is he's sort of talking about a lot of his rules, and this is one reason I wanted to talk about them with you, is that a lot of these rules are specifically about short films. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's what he was doing, is he was in the business of helping students make short films. That's one reason why I think these rules are so good. Short film is one of the most unforgiving media. Most short films are really, really bad. And you know this because you run a short film festival. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> made by children. Made by totally incompetent children. <laughs> like, really, you know full well. So, I mean, I think that this is... I think that one of the things I like about his advice is that they were sort of about his own career making feature films, but they were sort of about his students making short films. Right. But movies today and movies from that time are almost, in a way, as distant from movies nowadays as we are from ancient Greece. Maybe that's, oh, that's overstating it. But, I think that's overstating it. Okay, let's sit with that for a second, because let's be honest. The only people who really watch these old movies and love them are people like you and me. You know, freaks. My daughter has recently said she wants to have a rule of no movies from the 20th century. Yeah, okay, there you I'm go. Like, I'm like, when we do movie nights, and I'm like, oh God, we can't do that. But maybe I'm on to a point here. They, they, so the, the movies in McKendrick's now were made at a time which going to the movies was a big event. Maybe you only went to a few of them per year. You probably only see them once. You couldn't control when you'd see them. It's not on demand. Movies had to be self-contained stories that didn't require too much knowledge going in or calculated to make the biggest impression. Plus, there are very few movies compared to now, and you kind of had to watch whatever was being offered. How does that compare to what, how most people watch movies nowadays or consume stories nowadays? 
let's say, let's just leave it with like filmed entertainment. We can watch anything we want anytime, as many times as you want. We're drowning in tons of stories that at least at first glance seem pretty well made. But plus what most people want to watch is this new form of storytelling that you see in Marvel and Star Wars, which is an extended universe that many movies and TV shows are rooted in, which there are two levels, one level for the great unwashed and one for the knowledgeable elect. There's like a story for the casual viewer, but also an aspect of it that only the obsessives know and care about. So like you're watching Mandalorian, it's like, oh my God, Ahsoka Tano was in the Mandalorian. And I'm like, who's Ahsoka Tano? Like is that a character I'm supposed to know about? And I thought I liked Star Wars. I had no idea who that was. For some people, it's really important. Anyway, the dominant mode of storytelling now, whether it's movies or TV, is this one movie or episode of a TV show is part of this much vaster tapestry of stories happening in the same universe. Or you have these streaming series that maybe it's not part of a vaster universe, but it goes on for like 16 hours and yeah. not for two hours. And I think that's going to change the rules. And people seem to really like that. And stories that successfully work in this mode might have different rules in the world that McKendrick's comes from, just as both eras are different from ancient Greece. Yes, but nevertheless, I reread all of McKendrick's rules today in preparation for this. And I feel like there's very few rules on this list that aren't going to help the people making The Mandalorian make The Mandalorian. Mm -hmm. But before we go in, I just want to also talk, the, the other thing I want to talk about is like, what's, maybe this is a broader point, and maybe we could talk about it in a later episode, but what's like the social function of stories at all? And I think that has a bearing on the rules too. Like in Greece, the plays are part of a religious ritual. And according to Aristotle, the function is catharsis, this purging of emotions of pity and fear. Right, that are aroused in the viewer. And it's like a, it's something you do all together in a crowd, right? And notice there's no commercial aspect to that. And nowadays, the fundamental function of a story is to make money, to right. cost someone to buy a ticket, sign up for a streaming service or whatever. Sometimes just get a tax write-off and buy, <laughs> buy destroying the film before it is ever released. But yes, another, <laughs> another way to make money these days. Exactly. So you could do it through catharsis, but there's other ways to get someone on the side of the story. You write about this in a blog post from 2012. What urges are we satisfying? Yes. Like, I talked about how sometimes I would write a story and it would be like a perfect story. I'm like going, wow, this is a great character in a great story. And this is so meaningful. It's got a great theme. This is a perfect story, except for nobody will want to see it. And it, <laughs> there's just nothing at all appealing about this story. It does not satisfy any urges. If somebody goes and sees a movie at the movie theater... Then they go to the water cooler. There used to be these things called offices, and there used to be these things called water coolers. There used to be these things called movies that people would see in these things called movie theaters. And Stay on target. Saying that when... So I talk about how, like, when someone is at the water cooler on Monday morning, what are they going to say about your movie? Like, are they going to say, it was so funny, and that means you've satisfied the urge of laughter. If they say, it was hot, that means you've satisfied their lust. If they say, it rocked, that means you satisfied the adrenaline rush. Say, it was wild, that means you satisfied the thrill of transgression. It was gruesome, death wish fulfillment. It kicked ass, power fantasy. It was so sweet, romantic fantasy. It was devastating, empathy. It was gorgeous, beauty. It blew my mind, which is cognitive dissonance, which I think is also an urge that some people have. Well, this is like, they're all like, you have to engage the id at some point. Yes. Y you know, but this, notice none of those are catharsis. That's funny. Yeah, certainly not group catharsis. Not not the way Aristotle right. would have meant. Well, also, like, catharsis, like, he was... He was talking about like something that everybody experiences together. In movies, we would all go to like a theater and experience them together. But now we experience most of our stories alone, you yeah. know, watching a streaming service. I think it's going to change the rules and what's expected from a story. What kind of stories are going to get told? Oh, yeah. I mean, in my book, my most recent book, Secrets of Character, I talk about the advice on how to create characters for books, movies, TV, 
and memoirs, I do little introductions about like the fundamental differences in how we watch TV and movies. And you know, my editors were like, but there's no difference in how we watch TV and movies. We watch them alone in our apartments. And I'm like, no, movies are a collective experience. That's that's key to my advice. And well, the thing is, it I, is still true because everybody went off to see Top Gun, yeah. Maverick, you know, and they loved it. And people went together to see Avatar. I don't know how you feel about it. Like, I loved it and a lot of other people loved it. I thought it was not as good as the first one, but I didn't regret seeing it in the theater. So, but I think we can add to those urges to be satisfied, especially nowadays, is this thing, which is not cathartic or id-based. It's like, liking this movie or story identifies me as a certain kind of person who has certain socio-political or ideological commitments. Oh, I don't. Oh, I think it's just the exact opposite of that. I don't think... Can I make this case? Uh, I, I, you think that people who saw Top Gun, you think people who enjoyed Top Gun are the sort of people who want us to be bombing Iran? No. What I mean to say, well, number one, Iran isn't even mentioned. But, like, we talked about well, this before. it's pretty clearly Iran. Well, it looks like Vermont. You see in movies now, there are scenes which are just continuing an argument from Twitter. Just giving the, like, ultimate smackdown that you wish you would have thought of when you were dealing with your obnoxious MAGA uncle who wants to thank the troops and the police when saying grace uh, before Thanksgiving, or your obnoxious leftist niece who wants to do a land acknowledgement, you know, when she comes over your house. Um, it's kind of like the Marine Toddification of stories. You know the Marine Todd mean? No, I have no idea who Marine Todd is. Okay, this is something like a meme that was going on, or like something that's, that got passed from conservative to conservative. The short story. Okay, a Marine was taking college classes in between uh. his deployments to Afghanistan. <laughs> okay. One of his courses had a professor that was an atheist and a member of the ACLU. One day, the professor shocked everyone by walking into class, looking up and stating, God, if you are real, I want you to come down and knock me off this platform. I'll give you 15 minutes. Several minutes tick by in silence. When the 15 minutes of time almost expired, the Marine gets up from his seat, approaches the professor, and punched him in the face, knocking him off the platform out cold. The Marine simply went back to his seat. The professor came to, visibly shaken, and asked the Marine, What the heck did you do that for? The Marine said, God was busy protecting America's military, who are out protecting your right to say stupid shit like that, so he sent me to fill in. So the way my social media feed works is I only get parodies of right-wing memes. Uh -huh. So I read like 10 different parodies of this. Right. And then I have to sort of glean from the parodies what the urtext might have been. <laughs> right. <laughs> so th there, <laughs> there is no merit or function to this other than got him, owned, right? And the, you have, so you have like She-Hulk making a speech about how difficult it is to be a woman to the Hulk and him nodding along solemnly. And you have a few good men, which Jack Nicholson says you can't handle the truth. You have a part in Yellowstone, which a conservative woman dresses down a liberal professor when he tries to pick her up in a bar. These are all moments when you get to vicariously own our ideological enemies in some rigged argument. And like it or not, that's a big part of enjoyment for people when they watch stories now. They get to see the interminable arguments that we have to endure online or on TV actually end with victory for our own side. I just completely disagree with everything you're saying. But, but... Well, why do so many stories have that aspect to them now? It's so infuriating. It's I... anti-dramatic. It's boring. But you see it all the time now. And people hate it. No, people they love it. it. They, 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 these are you very popular that, shows. You think that anybody watching She-Hulk was like, oh, She-Hulk is telling Hulk that I can control my She-Hulk powers because I have endured the abuse that women endure. You think anybody watching She-Hulk was like, that's awesome. I, I, I don't know. It, it got made and people watched it. Like, And, and people liked it. Like, I, 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 Okay, let me put it this way. When Harrison Ford punched Nazis in Raiders of the Lost Ark, or Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, it had no ideological content. But now I see people reacting to the trailer for Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, and they're like, all right, he punched a Nazi, awesome. It has ideological valence now. There's an owning of one's ideological enemies of that that wasn't there before. 
Like maybe twas ever thus, stories have always had the function of announcing and reinforcing rules that bind a community together. They set expectations for what is allowed, what isn't allowed, what's good behavior and bad behavior. Like Goofus and Gallant is a basic case. But like, like I don't think about, I always think about like, how does a polyamorous person feel if they watch, you know, some kind of like, he's the one kind of movie. Which they, is they almost every movie. Yeah, like the, the only true like way that like a romance can end up is with two people end up together forever. You know what One I mean? One of my favorite songs from the 60s says, it's the purpose of a man to love a woman and it's the purpose of a woman to love a man. So come on everybody, let's play that game. Come on, let's play the game of love. And I just keep thinking like, that is the most dated song <laughs> that has ever been written. Like, if there's one rule that we have in our current culture is that it is not the purpose of a man to love a woman and it is not the purpose of a woman to love a man. Um, and, uh, but I still love that song. But I think this, I mean, I think you might agree with this more than you think because it's about, it's like that real life national pain thing. It's addressing something that everybody's thinking about and it's blowing off steam about it. Yes. It, it, so I, I don't know if you really disagree with me here. I, I think that people fucking hate those scenes in She-Hulk. I think people fucking hate those scenes. I think that the success of Top Gun, on the one hand, there's this very lazy reading of the success of Top Gun going like, well, we're a fundamentally right-wing people in this right-wing movie. Spoke to our, our deep-seated right-wing nature and mm -hmm. I think that that is just complete bullshit. I think that is just completely wrong. The two biggest movies of last year were Top Gun and Avatar. Top Gun... Avatar. Cameron hates the American military. Right, exactly. <laughs> Top Gun, a fundamentally right-wing pro-military movie. Avatar, a fundamentally left-wing anti-military movie. But people enjoyed them for the exact same reason. And people completely ignored the political content of both movies. Both movies had fairly incompetently conveyed political content you know neither movie was morally coherent but they were both movies that were emotionally coherent and that people enjoyed the emotion of those films and any degree to which those films were attempting to inculcate moral values was completely antithetical to the actual appeal of those movies right but i i do think and i, I think you're right but i think there are some people who get off on getting to vicariously own their enemies through some rigged argument in their entertainment. I think that is like a weird appeal that's, that, like, and I think that that's why like entertainment is so split into all of like these different subgenres, and it takes something like gigantic, like a gigantic technical achievement like Avatar, or something that's a reboot of some earlier universally beloved thing like Top Gun to break through that kind of political logjam. You know, but then you look at one of the other great successes of last year, Everything Everywhere All at Once, mm -hmm. which was entirely the opposite. <laughs> you know, was something that both Top Gun and Avatar were very much attempts to get back to classical storytelling. Avatar mm -hmm. was like, what if we took a classically structured story and then tried to turn it into foie gras by just injecting fat into it for a year? And I mean, that's then... not what they thought. They, they didn't say that. They they had a they had a different plan than that. They didn't say let's inject fat. But like, go on. I mean, that, that's that, that's one of your things you like to do. You like to like make up some like fake. I think in this a case... fake motivation of J James Cameron was not saying I want to make a shitty thing. He did not ever say that. He was like I he he more than anyways like I'm gonna make the best fucking thing. I'm gonna make you love it. I'm gonna and everybody's gonna say it was too expensive and I couldn't do it. I'm gonna prove them all wrong and. Never, never bet against box office Jim. Never bet against James Cameron. I think that's what we've all learned. Yeah, but I think that, I mean, I just 
fundamentally, just fundamentally disagree with everything you're saying. I just think that, if anything, the success of those two movies especially, less so with the success of Everything of Rural Lens, which was a box office success relative to its budget, but didn't make anywhere near as much money as those two movies did. I feel like the success of that movie, Everything of Rural Lens, speaks to people's willingness to get really strange and out there and weird and accept and embrace, you know, certainly the Academy voters who have traditionally been very conservative to embrace something that weird speaks to fundamental changes in Hollywood, at least mm-hmm. in the culture of Hollywood elites. I think that, however, the much more popular embrace of Top Gun and Avatar is the opposite and shows that people really like classical narratives and i think that mckendrick's rules still apply i think there is some balance to what i'm saying i think like part of like why black panther was so powerful is mm-hmm. it put people on a certain side of the ideological spectrum they say i liked it when like you know one of the kings that like uh martin freeman cia guy comes up to you and martin freeman speaks up and like he shuts them down and says you know be quiet colonizer and everybody's like yeah oh he, i completely disagree by that theory then Eternals would have been more popular than Black Panther. The same people loved Top Gun and Avatar, even though they were ideologically opposite movies. The same people loved them. Now, and I, We're talking about the same people as if there's like one perfect person. There are all these different audiences who are all engaged in different I don't ways think there are different audiences. By the time a movie makes $2 billion, Top Gun made a billion dollars, Avatar made $2 billion. By the time you've made more than a billion dollars, you've largely got the same audience. These are not two different audiences. They made a billion dollars. Okay, I, it's I mean, let's, almost let's, all the same people. Let's move on from this. I I, I don't think okay. we're going to agree on this, but I, I yeah, I, no, I, we're I, certainly I, not. So shall we go to McKendrick's rules? All right. So let's go ahead and blow through these forty-one rules. Let's see how many we can get to in a reasonable podcast length. Rule number one: Movies show and then tell. A true movie is likely to be sixty percent to eighty percent comprehensible if the dialogue is in a foreign language. So one of the only times I ever tried to watch a movie in a foreign language without subtitles was when I was in Cuba. They were showing movies in Spanish in Cuba, and of course felt no need to subtitle it of them. I did not speak Spanish. I probably shouldn't have even gone to Cuba not knowing Spanish because it was sort of a wasted trip. But I went ahead and went, and I still greatly enjoyed my trip. But at one point they showed... Is this when you got recruited? Uh, no, I had already been recruited. They went ahead and showed a Cuban film, Strawberries and Chocolate, and I was like, well, according to Alexander McKendrick, a sh- movie should be 60% to 80% comprehensible if it's in a foreign language. And I tried to understand it. And then afterwards, I'm like, Jesus, I could not understand that at all. Either this is a bad movie or, or I'm just an incompetent person. And then they're like, we apologize for the fact that the reels were in the wrong order when we projected the <laughs> film. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, all right. All right. You got to at least meet me halfway here. If you're going to ask me to understand a movie in a foreign language, please don't project the reels out of order. But so what do you think about this rule? Movies. So I think this is a good rule. I think that one of the things I talk about in my new book is to be repetitive, show and then tell. Like people are always like, oh, you know, tell, don't show or show, don't tell. And I'm like, show and tell. Mm. (laughs) First show, then tell. Yeah. Which is what he's saying here. And I think that that's first show them what's going on and then confirm it in the dialogue. And I think it's generally true for movies, but not all movies. I mean, I would hate for the person who wrote My Dinner with Andre to hear about this rule and not write My Dinner with Andre. You know, like, like I think this is kind of like, obviously there's exceptions, right? Oh, yes. And, and I don't want exception. to, and it's definitely for movies because this is why I had that whole rigmarole at the beginning. Say, right. he's talking about a certain context. Because yeah. it's not sitcoms. Yeah. You know, you look at Cheers, you can't figure out what's going on just from, because everybody's just talking yeah. you know, and standing around a bar. You can't get to some friends. I mean, maybe with like, um, or Seinfeld, but, 
that's a constraint of budget, obviously, which is just shows these these rules are contingent. Oh, oh, when you think about how sitcoms have developed, like some episodes of Community, like the paintball episode or The Good Place, like Eleanor's dreams invade heaven. Like we see that they do have the budget for it. It's a powerful and funny thing to actually make things physical. However, I think this is a not the rule generally for storytelling. It's a rule for movies and a certain kind of movie. Yeah. But I, the, I, I, there's a lot of movies that are very talky. I bet women talking, which I have not seen, <laughs> probably does not. Yes. I saw women talking, which is excellent, and uh, it certainly fails this role. So, it, sorry, it, uh, women talking. We are, you, <laughs> McKendrick has voted you out of Hollywood. But also another thing, I mean, I bet you could not understand really everything, everywhere, all at once without the dialogue. It would just be a bunch of insane images, right? Apparently, with everything, everywhere, all at once, you just need to turn the dialogue up 600% because <laughs> I couldn't understand it. I, I did not like, I should say I did not like everything, oh, okay. everywhere, all at well, once. Okay, you are an outlier here. <laughs> and uh, it was a half hour into everything, everywhere, all at once, and I'm like, yeah, okay, I just, I'm lost, I give up, and I just sat there for the rest of the movie. You're I did not understand a word of that. Oh. Uh, yeah, I'm as, as Stephen Colbert said, yes, everything, everywhere, all at once, or as your parents called it, I'm confused. Uh, and my kids laughed uproariously when we watched that. I've started watching Stephen Colbert with my kids and because they knew that their father was hopelessly confused by that yeah. movie. Okay, so that's All a right. you problem, I think. Well, I think that is interesting, though, because like that was a movie where they tried to show and not tell. Mm-hmm. I think that was a movie where they tried to just... They thought that they did not have to explain what was going on because it would be obvious from the amazing visuals. And the visuals in that movie were amazing. But they didn't then stop and go like, all right, now let's make sure everybody is up to speed. They were like, nope, we're going to keep going. And if you're lost, fuck you. And no, but I, think I that was if you had totally the dialogue, lost in that movie. If you had the dialogue, you could. there's a chance of you understanding what's going on. But without dialogue, there's no way you'd understand what's going on. I think they were counting on their ability for people to understand it without the dialogue. Okay, because the dialogue blew past, and they did not. They did not explain. No, but the people are going up to each other, saying, "We're in an alternate universe right now. I'm going to tell you what we have to do." You know what I mean? Like, like otherwise, if if you didn't know the whole idea of alternate universes existed, you'd be like, "Why does that person have hot dog fingers?" So okay, let's we're we're pressed for time. All right, number two. No, you're Cisco. Number two, prompts are the director's key to the design of incidental business. Unspoken suggestions for behavior can prevent, quote, theatricality, unquote. Okay, unpack which... all of that, like, like, director speak. The incidental business, what does that mean? I'm not exactly sure what he means. I mean, he's saying that, he's saying the same thing I always say, which is that it's all about objects. You tell the story through the prompts, you tell the story through the objects in their hands, and... Give an example. I talk about his film, The Man in the White Suit, one of the all-time great film masterpieces that... Alec Guinness has created a new fabric that cannot get dirty. And he has made himself a suit of it, which is obviously a white suit, because I believe it cannot be stained either. It cannot get dirty, it cannot be stained. And he is trying to introduce it into the marketplace, and everybody in the marketplace is just furious and doesn't want it. And everybody on, you know, from the bosses to the workers are all like, this will ruin the economy. And everybody's trying to kill him and rip the suit off of him. And if he was not literally wearing the white suit the whole time then the movie would completely fall apart. There's been so many movies like this. Like, look at a movie that I really disliked, like The Spanish Prisoner, where I think there's this really poisonous concept of the MacGuffin, where, you know, oh, Hitchcock was the greatest film of all time, and he talked about how important it was to have MacGuffins, and therefore he's given us permission to have And what is a MacGuffin? 
he's given us permission to have people just talk about this thing that they're all interested in without ever showing it. Well, I thought his definition Hitchcock's. was, it's a thing that everybody's after, but the audience doesn't care about. Exactly. But I think the audience should care about it. Yes, I completely disagree with Hitchcock in this case. I think that, yes, if you're a good enough filmmaker, if you're Hitchcock, you can have MacGuffins that the audience doesn't really care about and still just get people wrapped up in the story anyway. Yeah, we but care about the Ark story, of the Covenant. Yes, and you know? we care about the white suit. The white suit, I think, is the, the opposite of a MacGuffin. It is something where it's like, it's as opposed to a movie like David Mamet's The Spanish Prisoner where everyone's like, I've created a process. And it's like, oh, I'm going to kill you for your process. Like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to help I've you make your it. process. process. We never know. We are just told that there is a mechanical process that someone has invented that everybody mm -hmm. is trying to kill each other over. And he has read too many Hitchcock Truffaut books and he's like, oh, I don't need to say what the process is. I think the white suit in Man in the White Suit is just such a gorgeous visual and it brings it all so clear. But this is, you know. But, well, hold on. I think that that's MacGuffin, but he's talking about props, which aren't necessarily a MacGuffin. Props are the director's key to the design of incidental business. I think that means, like, things that the people are kind of doing in the scene, like yeah. washing dishes, right, or chopping up meat for a sandwich. Um, unspoken suggestions for behavior that can prevent theatricality. I think theatricality, he means, like, trying to emote your way to meaning rather than in a subtle way just show it through your actions in the environment right oh yeah well this is why i talk about in my first book about how kitchens are so much better than living rooms where you can accidentally cut yourself in the kitchen you can accidentally cut somebody else you can accidentally catch yourself on fire you can actually accidentally catch someone else on fire you can have what you're talking about result in action in various ways because you've got these prompts in your hands as opposed to I talk about how especially when they make independent films especially the independent films of the 90s how it would just be people in coffee shops talking for 10 pages of dialogue in a coffee shop and I talk about how like you know well, the only thing you can really do in a coffee shop is you can choose to throw your coffee in someone else's face but you have to get really worked up to do that as opposed to in a kitchen where you can accidentally cut yourself in without choosing to do it where you can you're Dialogue can subconsciously affect your behavior in ways it can affect your behavior subconsciously in a coffee shop. And so, yeah, so that's what he's talking about here. Props are the director's key to design of incidental business, that the more things you put in their hands, then the less theatricality you have to have. The less people have to act theatrically, like yeah. you're being theatrical, is obviously not something anyone ever wants says in a relationship and also something no one ever wants says in a movie. And so, but this is also a contingent piece of advice because you're not going to have these props and say a Greek tragedy you know what right. i mean they, they have no props yes. you know what I mean? and, and, and so like i i guess i'm just trying to highlight all along the contingent nature of this advice in which like we can do close-ups we can see a close-up of a hand you know coming in like you know taking a knife out of a pocket or whatever which you know maybe even in a stage play we can't see quite as much but i, I see how props are important for that too okay number three a character in isolation is hard to make dramatic. Drama usually involves conflict. If the conflict is internal, then the dramatist needs to personify it through the clash with other individuals. I totally agree with this. This is much more true for films than novels. Novels, you can get a whole novel out of internal conflict. 
and you cannot get a film out of internal conflict. You need to somehow personify it with others. I cite as an example a film I really love is The Secret Lives of Dennis, which was adapted from a novel by Jane Smiley, but he starts hallucinating one of his dental patients as confronting him about how he needs to confront his wife about her affair, and that was added for the movie. You can't make a movie of the original novella, which is just a dentist wondering if he should confront his wife about her affair, <laughs> unless you've got some sort of verbal conflict. This is another... Like, for movies kind of of advice not for storytelling in general it is but it wouldn't have ruined that novel you know i've never read the original novella i think it was called the age of reason or something by jane smiley but it wouldn't have ruined that novella to have him imagine a patient who he is clashing with i think that it might have been an interesting take to do in the original novella you didn't have to have ruined the novella you haven't read (laughs) i think that it's not it's not awful advice for novelists either. Okay. My friend Dan Krauss wrote a book called Whale Fall that's coming out in August. It's about a guy who gets trapped in a whale and he's only got like an hour left of oxygen in his scuba suit and he's got to like find his way out. And so it's just a guy who's alone. It's being pitched as like 127 hours meets the Martian. But like and I said, well, how, how do you do that? And it's like, oh, well, you know, it's also about his relationship with his father and there's flashbacks to that. I was like, oh, okay, I get it. So you did, even though it's like one guy alone in a whale is a whole thing, you know, and even like Castaway with Tom Hanks, he like, and they don't do a cheat of like doing flashbacks, stuff like that. But basically he personifies his volleyball. Yes. And calls it Wilson yes. uh, and, and, and talks to it. And then when he is, they, at the end, when he's getting rescued and, like, the volleyball floats away and he's going, Wilson, Wilson, like, we feel it. We're like, oh, no, he's losing the volleyball, his only friend. And so, like, e- like you can even do it with an inanimate object. Like, one of the most boring children's books of all time is Hatchet. Your kids made a eight-minute version of Hatchet for your 90-second film festival. Yes. Uh, a- Ignoring the first rule of the 90-second film festival and making an eight-minute film. But it was a very funny parody of Hatchet they made. Hatchet is not an awful book. Both my kids have read Both it. my girls revolted when I read it to them. They thought it was like, super boring. But And I don't like survival stories in general. But so the way that we were able to make it into a good movie is that instead of the mom giving Brian a hatchet, she gives him a guy named Chet who's really into his hat. Hat Chet. And then he just basically causes all these problems for Brian in the wilderness, but then turns out to be super useful in the end. Uh, go to nerdersecondnewberry.com, check out Hat Chet. But the point is, it was a better movie because there was another character there. Hat Chet, and not just some dumb tool. There's a reason they've never made Hatchet into a movie. They have. It was made into a TV movie. Really? Uh, and I, I watched a little bit of it to get ready for this, and it's, you know, Walker, Texas Ranger level badness. <laughs> okay. All right, so let's go ahead and go on to rule number four. Self-pity in a character does not evoke sympathy. What do you think about that? I don't know about that. Like, I mean, I, I guess maybe in a movie that's true, like nobody likes Greenberg with, you know, you oh. know Ben Stiller. However, in like Notes from Underground is a self-pitying character. In a fan's notes, that's a self-pitying guy. In but, a movie, definitely, I think that you can't have self-pitying main characters. But they, they say like self-pity in a character, all character, any character does not evoke sympathy. Everyone loves Marvin from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And everybody loves Eeyore from... Would you want to see a movie called... Mar- would you want no. to see the Marvin prequel? No, I'm sorry. They said <laughs> self-pity in a character. They didn't say self-pity in a main character. They didn't say self-pity in a protagonist. They said in a character. And I think there are... If you can have a 
like um, not a main character, but another person who's in the the movie who is self pitying, like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh or Marvin. I think that can be tremendously fun. Uh, I would say he probably means lead character, and I, you know, I say when I originally wrote about this, how like even if we're watching a movie about a loser, we want that loser. It is losers are more likable to us if they are deluded. A deluded loser is more likable than a realistic well, loser. Well, Ignatius Riley is a deluded loser. Yes, we like deluded losers, and I talk about like Lloyd Dobler and say anything thinks he's going to become a kickboxing champion mm -hmm. that adds a level of delusion to his character that makes him in some ways even more of a loser than he already was but we like it because it means he's not self-pitying he's mm -hmm. thinks he's got a plan in life and we prefer people who have some sort of plan in life or some sort of goal to characters who yeah like you mentioned before and i think we've said before on this podcast that i completely gave up on the entire concept of independent film when i saw Greenberg and Concept Big Fan. of independent film. Come on. <laughs> I, you overstate your point so much. I was, I used, there, for the, for about 15 years of my life, I would start every weekend going like, let me read the movie reviews and then go see a good independent film in a good art house film theater this weekend. And mm -hmm. that's how I would begin every weekend of my life mm -hmm. until I saw Greenberg and Big Fan in the same weekend, both of which were about <laughs> self-pitying losers. And I said, I'm never doing that again. I'm never going to open up the newspaper and say, what are the latest independent films at the local art house looking across movie theaters? I'm looking across and see Sideways. you got a DVD of Sideways here. How is Paul Giamatti's character not a self-pitying loser? You love that movie. I love it too. That's an excellent question. He is... Yeah, I mean, he's a self-pitying loser. They probably, in the, in the, those movies, I think, came out after Sideways. They probably saw Sideways and say, Giamatti can do it. You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. why, I'm Ben Stiller. I'm a comedy genius. Um, why can't I do it? So but, why, why what, what, what sets Sideways apart from those? And it, uh, similar self-pitying loser. I think that, you know, you when you were talking about your 10 E's back in the day, uh, yes. you talked about... What were um, they? <laughs> I don't know. But uh, you talked about how one of them was about living a fantasy, about making your fantasies come true. Mm -hmm. Or he is someone who is going on this purely hedonistic trip in Sideways. Mm -hmm. He is someone who is... Enacting a fantasy, maybe. Enacting <laughs> a fantasy. I think that was it. And he is someone who is attempting to live his own dream and makes his self-pitying wizardom much more appealing. Okay. But that's an excellent example of a movie that completely contradicts McKendrick's rules and still works wonderfully. Okay, so th this is why I want to just like take a pause here and say like, beware, because rules are going to lead you astray. Rules are going to kind of cut down on what you're capable of, and they're they're you're going to keep you from good ideas. I think that everybody needs rules sometimes. That everybody is like, what the fuck? Why does nobody like the shit I'm writing? And then has to retreat to the rules for a while and realize, like, oh, I never even realized that that's something that is off-putting. And I think that certainly when, when Alexander Payne made Sideways, I don't think he was like, oh, I'm going to make this movie because everybody loves self-pitying losers. I think that he made that movie knowing full well, can I make a movie about a self-pitying loser that breaks the streak, that mm -hmm. gets people to actually like a self-pitying loser for once, even though people are not inclined to like them. I don't think that me saying this McKendrick rule to Alexander Payne would have caused him to go like, oh, I'd better not make that movie then. I think he would have, I think he would have said, good, it's good to know that this is not going to be inherently sympathetic, but I'm going to, you know, but I think it's going to be likable. I think I can make it work. Right. I, well, I think like people, like, some, some kind of ideas are bad 90% of the time that you're working on until that last 10% in which they're good. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, like I, like, and I, I think those are often the best ideas. 
in which like the first draft, second draft, third draft seems like there's something structurally definitely wrong with it. And then, but then you're able to pull it off in the teeth of opposition. You know what I mean? That's what makes an interesting thing. Like the best things are the things that seem like they're not going to work for the first 95% of it. It seems to flaunt all the rules. And then finally, because you keep with it and you, you, you stay with it until you figure out the truth of it, then it works. Unfortunately, I think if you get like 60% of the way through something, it's still not working. You say, well, I guess I better go to the rules. You know, and you never get to that 95% where it starts working. I talk about in my second book about how I talk about how, you know, there's believe, care, and invest and how you've got to make people believe about, care about, and invest in your hero. But sort of the fourth element is the off-putting element and that the whole per- the whole reason you're piling on the believe, care, and invest is to leaven this one element you have that is going to be the inherently off-putting element of every character. But that, that is, in fact, the good yeast. Characters have. It that is, is the, the thing yeast. that will make it rise. It is the yeast that makes it rise. And how if you don't have that element, if you don't have the element that it's like, well, we'd better believe in this character, we'd better care about this character, we'd better invest in this character, because there's going to be something about this character that is inherently not ideal for getting us to love a hero. That then And then you are playing against that. That is the secret of a great character. Should we go on to five? Yes, let's go on to number five. So this is one that I know will infuriate you because you have, and we shouldn't we spend too much time on this because we've done whole episodes of the podcast on this before. But number five is beware of sympathy between characters. That is the end of drama. And I agree with this. And Even I, after our long discussions about this, about Ted Lasso and everything. The uh, We've had, yeah, we've had several episodes about this. And, you know, the more that... James Kennedy disagrees with me. The more I know, I must be right. And I, I think that... You say it, that characters should never apologize to each other. I generally think that apologizing is a mistake. But you have made strong cases before on this podcast about excellent apology scenes and uh, about how they can work. But I not just think, apologies. Just sympathy between characters is not necessary. Is not the end of drama. No, it is not. I, I disagree with this 100%. <laughs> apologies can be dramatic. Especially if the person is the kind of person who doesn't apologize. Ted Lasso has a lot of apology scenes. We love it when Roy apologizes because he's not the kind of person who apologizes. And also, beware of sympathy between characters. We like to watch people get along. Yes. Yes, Kirk, Spock, and Bones scrap a bit in Star Trek. But they would all go to the mat for each other. And that is why we like watching them. Not because they're in opposition to each other, although that's part of it. We like to listen to them kind of, you know, fight a little bit. Sometimes drama isn't about people fighting each other. Sometimes it's about a bunch of people coming together to solve a problem together, each bringing their own strengths and weaknesses to bear on it. In fact, as Star Trek shows, those are the most popular stories. No, 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 this is 100% wrong. Yeah, but but we had an episode where we looked at two different versions of a... Kirk Bones scene, one of which was flinchier than the other and worked much better than the one that where they were in complete sympathy. But yeah, I think that let's not spend too much time on this because we've already staked out our our claims on this one a long time ago. Clearly, this wrong. is one where you are totally in opposition to what McKendrick is saying, and you yes. feel like what McKendrick is saying is totally poisonous well, I could to just, the writing of good I could, But I can just point to what is drama. popular now and what people like to watch, mm-hmm. and it's 
it's just simply not this. People are not always scrabbling for dominance, and the sympathy between characters is fun to watch. And like I've said in previous episodes, they would tell us in improv, agree with each other. It's more interesting than fighting with each other. Yes. Okay, so complete disagreement with Kendrick on point five. Yes, and I'm going to disagree with this next one, too. Okay, point six. Beware of flashbacks, dream sequences, and visions. In narrative slash dramatic material, these tend to weaken the dramatic tension. They are more suited to, and he cannot drip with more uh, disdain here, they are more suited to, quote, lyric, unquote, material. I don't even know what he means by (laughs) lyric material. When I used to write promotional copy for scholastic books, whenever we had a real stinker, we would always describe it as a lyric. That would be, <laughs> we'd be like, well, um, nothing happens in this book, so I guess it's lyric. I don't know what that means. What does lyric mean? <laughs> Something that makes you think about your place in the world and, and what life means. It's lyric. I think that's what he's complaining about. He's saying bad movies are about like thinking about nice, sweet things and what life means. But I think that this is generally true. Half the time when I see a movie and there's a flashback, I'm like... You know what would have been even better than this flashback? Not having this flashback. Do you feel we that did not way need this Fiction? flashback. No, certainly not with Pulp Fiction. Do you feel Fiction. that way with Reservoir Dogs? No. Do you feel I... that way with Rashomon? <laughs> no. Okay, well, I don't know. I would see for three for three here. How, how more do you want me to go on? Uh, there are wonderful, but he's not saying that they're forbidden. He's, and even with sympathy, he wasn't saying it's forbidden. He's saying beware of. And I think that in both cases, being a being aware of, or at least being aware of, that sympathy can end drama, and being aware that often, if you just take the flashback out, it's a stronger movie. If you take the dream sequence out, it's a stronger movie. If you take the vision out, it's a stronger movie. I think that that is something to at least be aware this is of. One of. There's a reason why, when some when people who are starting to write stories, the, the thing that they always do is they... they person wakes up at the end, oh my gosh, it was all a dream. You know, that's a bad thing to do as a writer. If it's not Wizard of Oz or Mulholland Drive, then it's usually probably a bad idea to end it with, it was all a dream, or maybe Inception. But, like, the thing is, stories are dreams. Like, we are working with dreams. Obviously, a dream within a dream is a problematic, weird thing to do. However, it's, it's so closely related that I wouldn't just go out and say, we can't do dreams, we can't do flashbacks. Oh, no. But he's saying be aware of. But, yeah, but I when think you say, that... when, when somebody in a list of things says do this, do that, and they say beware of, that means, you know, beware of not using the Oxford comma. That, <laughs> that, you know, that, that just means, you know, don't do this. There is no shortage of things I've read where I'm like, just cut this flashback out. Just cut it out. Just cut it out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yes, I mean, certainly I loved Glass Onion, which has what wonderful flashback structure. Uh, as the dives out, I just rewatched Last Onion, and the flashback is just perfect in there. It's a mm-hmm. very, very long flashback, which you are not supposed to do. A great it flashback like, in, the, in Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a half hour long flashback in Glass Onion, mm-hmm. and I think it's just brilliant. Obviously, these things can all work beautifully, although I don't like Mulholland Drive and don't like that it is all you a dream sequence. You are wrong to dislike it. I am right. No, I am no, right. You everybody agrees that that's like the best David Lynch movie. But Nobody okay. likes it. You're alone. You're the only person who's ever liked that movie. <laughs> You're oh my dick. god, you just spit all over me. My hand is soaking <laughs> wet. Maybe, maybe we shouldn't point. have been doing this together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, back when we used to record separately, I, you could not spit on me. I was spit free. Yeah. All right, let's go on to point seven. Screenplays are not written, they are rewritten and rewritten and rewritten. So, this is excellent advice. 
this is this is perfect advice. This is excellent advice. Everybody needs to hear this. This is something that beginners do not understand and they need to understand. And it is time that they were told this. And this would be a great thing to learn if you were in a Cal Arts film class. Sure. I have no problem with the idea of working on something for a long time and editing it and, and getting notes and making it better. Some of these rules have genuine insight. This is just a chestnut. This, yeah. This, you know, this is this has no content. Let's just go on to the next one. All right, number eight. Screenplays come in three sizes, long, too long, and much too long. This is just and trying to be funny. We'll also include in here, number nine, student films come in three sizes, too long, much too long, and very much too long. Okay, this is like, so, just like Aristotle having a problem with deus ex machina. This is a guy who just, he wants to get out his spleen about something. Like, he, he's not making a real point here. Oh, he is making an excellent point. I think this is something that he's people just, very he's much He's frustrated about something and he's lashing out. What do you mean? Screenplays come in three sizes. What screenplays? The screenplays that you get? The screenplays that get produced? Like, what screenplays? This year, the actual movies were long, too long, and much too long. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, Avatar, god damn, did not need to be three hours and 15 minutes. You know, they just put out John Wick 4 and it's two hours and 50 minutes. Every movie last year was two hours and 50 minutes, and things have just gotten too long. But he, he's, he's talking about a different era, long. right? Like, he, he's like, I guess maybe... He's, the, he's talking about how screenplays... He's talking about... He was making this at a time when screenplays were... Oh, I can't tell you how much I really disliked the movie Mank. Did you see the movie Mank? No. <laughs> I, I, I would have thought that would be something you would love. It's about film history. It was about Herman Mankiewicz, who wrote his 300-page draft of Citizen Kane, which was had nothing to do with the final movie of Citizen Kane. And then it was like, oh, and then Orson Welles, the evil Orson Welles came in, and he took this 300-page screenplay, and he made his 95-minute movie out of it, and then Orson Welles dared to take a co-writing credit on the movie, when all he did was cut it down from 300 pages to 95 pages. Like, he didn't even write any of it. Like, that's what writing is. That's what writing is. Okay, Turning I, a 300-page screenplay... I can't screenplay share your outrage. I haven't seen the movie. ...to a 95-page screenplay is writing. And, like, if you wrote a 300-page screenplay about William Randolph Hearst, fuck you. All right. But here's the thing. We live in a streaming era in which you write a 300-page thing about William Randolph Hearst. That's six episodes. That's a season. (laughs) Why not, man? I thought you would really appreciate these rules because you you started a film festival in which you insisted that every film be 90 seconds. And everybody breaks that rule. So surely every film in the 92nd Newbery, especially your own films, are too long, much too long, or very much too long. I'm sorry. My hatchet (laughs) is... Just the right length. <laughs> you have a. Film I get five hundred movies a year. Ninety percent of them are terrible. That's what percentage true. of them are ninety seconds? Very few. <laughs> Very few. They're all long, too long, or much too long. But I'm not going to the what I what's going on with the film festival, which are movies made by children who usually this is the first movie that they've ever made. This is not applicable to general Hollywood professional advice. Well, he says student films come in three sizes. Long, yeah, students who are like 20 years long. old and they're at Cal right. Arts or wherever. I think that this whole thing of too long, there is some virtue, strangely enough, in padding things out. People, The way that people watch stories now is different than how people used to watch it. They watch it while they're ironing. They watch it while doing other things. People love to watch Emily in Paris, in which nothing happens. That, in, in which you can just kind of tune out of it and tune back into it, and you can still kind of get what's going on. It's what they call 
ambient TV. Now, you don't like it, and I don't like it, but these things are the kind of stories that get told right now. And I... we can either say... Everything has to be the way it used to be, or we could say this is the way the stories are now. Um, I I hate it, but this might be like people like, you know, saying, "Oh, you have to do Shakespeare on TV when these other things are happening." I thought you would love these rules. I thought you would feel seen by this, given that you uh, spend all day every day looking at snarky. too long student it's films. It's too snarky. All right. Um, the, the, it, it feels like he is getting some spleen out by saying student films, the shit that I have to sit through all the time, are coming three <laughs> sizes, too long, much too long, and very much too long. It's just he's getting something off his chest. He's not really giving us true wisdom. I Well, so as you guys, in the show notes, we will link to my original posts where I go through these rules and say what I have to say about them. And what I say about this one is, this is so very true. Sitting through a 15-minute short film is just as hard as sitting through a four-hour feature. If you want to see terrible short films, go to any film school's year-end festival. If you want to see great short films, watch any commercial break in primetime. Those guys can make you cry with a 30-second time in commercial. Even better yet, watch this one-second film festival. So I show, and amazingly, this is 10 years old, but it's still here. And there is a minute-long festival of 61-second films. And they are just wonderful. And I, it was very inspiring to me as a student filmmaker to see these, mm. this one-second film festival. And I wish our professors had said, all right, everybody, we're going to do a one-second film festival. All right. Well, one more point about this. Yeah. Um, we were all talking about we're getting tired of movies that are too long and streaming series that go on for too long or are padded out. But this is definitely not the case for books. And this is why it's kind of contingent storytelling advice just for movies. There's no such thing as a too long or much too long or very much too long book. No. What I'm saying is that I love the detail in Tolkien. And I love it when he stretches oh out God. his wings and lets oh it fly. Oh, God. Well, okay. Oh, Token oh. needs to be cut down. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow, Matt. Maybe if he took your advice, he'd be famous. What the fuck? <laughs> the, 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 Tolkien the, needs to be cut down. Well, okay. I'm sure I'm sure everybody's waiting for the Matt Bird edit of Tolkien. <laughs> um, but same with Joyce or Proust or Victor Hugo or, like, the Gorman Victor Gasp Hugo books. totally needs to be cut down. Needs to be. Well, <laughs> I, again, if they had, he had taken your advice, maybe he'd be famous. They, these are people who are beloved for a reason, and there's a certain kind I of think. stretching of your wings that you can do in prose, which is a more leisurely style, that you don't have to submit to these, you know, fascist ideas of, like, everything has to, you know, absolutely relate to each other in this very mechanical way that you have with film. Victor Hugo was being paid by the word and overwrote <sighs> God. Yeah, this is that's a, a a a point that's not even worthy of of engaging with. Like right. the, 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 the 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 reason why people love to sink into a book is because they love to sink into it and be absorbed by it. Moby Dick. People love, and I love the parts where he just starts talking about whales for a while. Psychology. Uh, yeah, I do not love the parts where he just talks about whales and Moby Dick, but uh, I think that there's a case to be made. I think that, you know, a good example of something that seems like it could be cut down but really shouldn't be is Game of Thrones. That Game of Thrones goes on and on and on and never ends and never coalesces and never comes mm -hmm. together. But I find Game of Thrones very pleasurable to read, and mm -hmm. oh, I, that's a book I like to George R. R. Martin? I would not edit those books. Okay, so I feel like those books, even though they are very, very long and full of digressions and not have no narrative coherence to them. I feel like that I just like sinking into and living in that world. Okay, and you understand I would not how I would feel that way about Tolkien. Yes, I can understand and how I read one book feel by George R. R. Martin, and I was like, that's enough. Yeah. 
because I, I don't like his worldview, frankly. Oh no, I I I certainly prefer Tolkien's worldview to Martin's, but uh, but I think that Martin is a better writer. Um, you okay. think Martin is a better writer than Tolkien? Yes. That is ridiculous. Okay, go on. I think that uh, if if you think that George R. R. Martin is a better stylist than Tolkien, then there's a there's a problem. There's a problem. Um, okay, let's move on to rule number ten. If it can't be cut it out, then cut it out. Everything non-essential that you can eliminate strengthens what's left. I think that this is true. I think this is about excellent movies. advice. About Hollywood movies. I think it is true for novels. Oh my god. About Moby Dick? You, you just cut out the Cetology chapters, it'd be better? Yes. I disagree, 100%. <laughs> but, but I think that I think that there's a case to be made for the Cetology chapters in Moby Dick. I think that, that you can't just say, oh, that would have been a better novel, or it would have been a more popular novel, or it would have been a greater novel if you took those out. I think there's a case to be made for them. However, I think that there's also a case to be made for, you know, nobody would have missed them if they had gone. But I think that we are talking about students. He is teaching students, and this was advice for his students. And learning that everything non-essential can be cut out, and if it can be cut out, it should be cut out, is a very important Rubicon that all students must cross. This is a very important thing that students must accept, and this is excellent advice. I mean, surely you have found this with your own novels. Surely you found this with Drive the Tornado. Surely there were things... I mean, I'm sure that novel was once longer than it is now. And it there started were things, as a short story. And it got it, expanded to a novel. Like, just like Dare to Know... Longer? No. Just like Dare to Know and just like The Order of Oddfish, it started as a short story and then expanded to a novel. And you never cut it down? No. Okay. That's a fascinating way of working. Like, um, the, I think When I've started with the idea... That's a novel-length idea, it's like the Magnificent Moots uh-huh. or other stuff. It, it got out of hand with me. Only if I could write it first as a short story and that's, then expand it to a novel did it work. That is fascinating. Every time I've written a that successful com- novel, that's the way it's worked. That is completely different from how most novels work, I think. Probably. Because there's not a lot of fat in your novels. I would not say there is fat in Bride of the Tornado. It's a very, it moves, it's got an excellent pace to it. I would say that Dare to Know is Dare to Know has digressions in it that could yeah, there's have there's a lot gone. of digressions. There, yeah. there are things that that could have not been there in Dare to Know. There are things that could have not been there in Order of the Oddfish, but the Order of Oddfish. Okay, but that is fascinating to me that these were not. I think most novels get totally out of hand and have to be cut down, and that you're saying yours were not. I had to bloat them on purpose. The, 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 okay, there, there's a you you read the Gormenghast books. No, I haven't. Mervyn Peak. No, I haven't. Like, I, I think uh, I might have talked about them on an earlier episode, but like, fantasy could have gone in two directions in England in like the early nineteen fifties. It could have gone the Tolkien way, in which a bunch of people go out on a quest to a larger world, or it could have been like Gormenghast, which is just about you just learn more and more about the dealings in one castle, as in, in just like this like kind of weird like liturgical life in this one place and how it's just kind of winding down and crumbling. And it's so long. There are so many digressions about all the weird little traditions in in this mm-hmm. weird castle. And it's so delightful. It's so wonderful to read about. And what is Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy but one digression after another? <laughs> yes. And, and that is one of the most beloved things. People still read it now. And how many books from like 1979 do people still read? My daughter read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and loves it. Um, yeah, so maybe this is true for heist movies or Hollywood products, but in general for storytelling, this is not true. It's not true that you that eliminating things strengthens what's left? 
yeah, that's not true. Sometimes you got to keep the stuff in to get, give it the, in the same way that fat makes things more delicious. You have to keep in sometimes things that seem like, oh, you don't want to pare everything down to the bone. You want to have a living world. That's why, this is why Tolkien is popular. This is why people still care about him because it's a big world, which is so much that you're never going to be able to process. And there's so much, it, maybe your eye skips over it as you're reading it, or some people do, but then you come back to it and you read it again and you get more into it. You, there is something about something that is big and, um, and capacious and generous and not simply just a heist movie in which every single detail mechanically moves into the next detail. Okay. I think this is generally excellent advice. I, for a long time, was someone who gave notes to novelists. And one of the main reasons they came to me is because what they had written was just too long. And they knew it was too long. And they needed my advice on what to cut. And you know, a lot of what I said was, this can be cut out and it should be cut out. Everything non-essential that you eliminate strengthens what's left. And that was a lot of the advice I gave. But if Herman Melville had sent me Moby Dick, I wouldn't have said, well, dude, cut out all the cytology. I would not have, you know, I would have said, like, okay, obviously you're going for a thing here, and I'm not here to harsh your mellow. I'm not here to, you know, say that you can't do the thing that you're going for. That is not, that was not my job. My job was to say, like, okay, you are not achieving what you set out to achieve, and this is just too damn long, and just that's what needs to be cut down. That would be your notes to Herman Melville? The famous American novelist. No, that's what I'm saying would not be my note to okay. Herman Melville. That would be my note to J.R.R. Tolkien. <laughs> that would totally be my note to J.R.R. Tolkien. Well, this is I, just I, too goddamn he, long. He's, he's... You don't need to describe somebody walking across a field for two pages. Oh, that's why he died obscure. <laughs> yes. All right. Let's go and go on to number 11. Exposition is boring. He writes all in all caps. <laughs> Exposition is all caps boring unless it is in the context of some present dramatic tension or crisis. So start with an action that creates tension, then provide the exposition in terms of the present developments. Excellent advice. I totally agree. For movies. I mean, it wouldn't hurt in novels. To... We love exposition in books. Moby Dick, War and Peace, Les Miserables. Hitchcock's Guide to the Galaxy, this exposition that is only tenuously connected to what's going on, I think it has to do with the shifting social function of a story. Uh, people used to love entertainment and instruction. They used to love the idea they could learn something from a book. It's still the case now. People read, you ever read Neil Stevenson? Uh, yeah, Cryptonomicon. Okay, yeah. yeah people want to learn stuff, and he does exposition like that too. He does tons of just exposition of like, here's how cryptography works, here's how this yeah. works, here's how that works. We read the Little House in the Prairie books. The first book is just, how do you make this thing that you can eat? It's just a big oral fantasy. There's no plot in Little House in the Big Woods. It's just like, how do you make this? How do you make that? There's a lot of different ways to write a story and to write a book. Um, they don't all have to be tight heist movies. Right. Matt. They, they, can, they can just, <laughs> they can be weird exhibition fests. And I, you know what, you know, what my, my girl's favorite part of... Inception is what's that when Leonardo DiCaprio is explaining to Elliot Page how it works. Yeah, they love that scene, and that's the scene which everybody says, "Oh no, he's just doing giving ex exposition on how his whole world works." But they love that. People like to have people. And that's one of the five, the ten E's. Explain. It's kind of a pleasure to have things explained to you in a compelling and interesting way. And I don't think this is true. Exposition is not boring. 
It can be. It can be. He didn't say unless, exposition unless, can be boring. He said exposition is boring unless. And then he talks about it, it, a way it, to it, make it, But in third. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and, and in War and Peace, so it's not in the context of some tr- present dramatic tension. They, in Les Miserables, he just goes on about shit that is not germane to the scene at that moment. He just goes on about other stuff. Like, it, it, it's okay. And I think, it's basically, and this is why I talked about the Greek stuff so much before, because I want to talk about, like, this is advice for different kinds of stories. And he's talking about, how do I make the sweet smell of success? That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about, how do I write Les Miserables? And I don't want to take rules for drama and falsely universalize them, which is always the danger with your project. But certainly someone who is trying to get published as a novelist now should not be writing Les Miserables. That's not going to get published now. I I don't know. Is it? David Foster Wallace wrote uh, Infinite Jest. That did pretty well. Granted, that was in the 90s, but like people write weird shit. Here's the thing. You can't just say... Try you, this is like that false wisdom of like I'm a canny operator. I know how the business works. Well, you know what nobody thought would win the Oscars? Everything, everywhere, all at once. Right. They'd say, oh, these guys who did Swiss Army Man, which Harry Potter pl- played a corpse, a farting, a corpse. farting corpse. They're gonna be who was gonna lay odds that they were gonna yeah. sweep the Oscars in a couple of years with their multiverse movie that wasn't a Marvel movie. Nobody would have laid outs to that. And so this whole kind of canny, like, well, if I would give advice to an author now, well, this is why all books are seem to be the same now and kind of suck because everybody is so cautious. So no, I I don't agree with you there. So, okay. Okay, James, before we move on to the next one, I am tired. It is 1233 AM. This is, has been so much fun to have you actually here in my house, have us actually talking, but of course, uh, my poor kids and wife are upstairs trying to sleep, and they may be awoken by our shouting downstairs. It is 12.33, I should go to bed, I gotta get my son on the bus in the morning. This has been you, so much fun, and I yes. wanna continue with these. I think these have been wonderful yeah. prompts for us to talk about our different feelings about story. So let's go ahead and wrap up there. I think this has been an excellent episode. Yep. I don't think I'm gonna have to edit it very much. Good. I think that we're gonna, and we've just barely begun. We've still got more than half this list left to go. <laughs> well, but this is we won't, next time we won't have as much intro. So next okay, time we unless can I write that. more. <laughs> yeah, knowing you, we'll probably have just as much intro. Knowing me, knowing you. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, yeah, so um, yeah, uh, everybody remember you have to you have to, if you love me, and I know you do, you have to go out and pre-order Bride of the Tornado. Everybody should pre-order Bride of the Tornado, and it looks like uh, if you're in the Evanston or Chicago, Illinois area, we're gonna be doing an event together to help launch the book at the end of the summer. So we are very excited about that. This has been fantastic. It's been so good to have you here in person. Let's go ahead and wrap it up. We will see you later, America. And before too long, we're going to finish McKendrick's Rules with our part two of this episode. Go and sin no more. Okay. Bye, guys. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Story podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on the Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. Find out about James's novels, Bride of the Tornado, Dare to Know, and The Order of Oddfish at jameskennedy.com. Our music is by Haddon Kime. Our logo is by Jessica Friday. See you next time.